Amen. Well, it's good to see you here this morning. And uh, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 John. 1 John, chapter 1. 1 John, chapter 1. And uh, we've been in a series during the summer in the Psalms. And this morning we have the opportunity to start a new series uh, in 1 John. And so really looking forward to being in this series with you over the next several weeks. And this morning we'll begin in 1 John chapter 1, and I'm going to read for us the first four verses, and then we will pray and consider what God has to say to us from His Word, okay? So 1 John chapter 1, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, it is a privilege and a blessing to be together this morning as your people and to worship you. We thank you, Father, that where your church gathers, that you promise to be with us and among us. Father, we pray now that you would be present with us, blessing us, helping us, strengthening us. Father, we pray that you would Give us grace to do what we cannot do. Help me, Lord, to faithfully explain and proclaim your word. And Father, we pray that you would help us to hear and to listen and to receive it by faith. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, we are beginning a new series in 1 John, and we're entitling this series, That You May Know. And we've entitled the series that you may know because the letter of 1 John is a letter about Christian assurance. Assurance that we know God, that we belong to Him, that He is ours, that through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received life and that we possess eternal life with God forever. And so... 1 John is a letter about assurance, Christian assurance. And let me just say to you this morning that if you lack Christian assurance, that it's hard for me to imagine anything that would be better for your personal growth, for your psychological well-being, for your overall peace and joy, than to obtain a true, deep, abiding Christian assurance. And so, over the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to be in 1 John, and we're going to be thinking about this theme of Christian assurance. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want to focus on this question, how can we know the truth? How can we know the truth? Because it is impossible to experience Christian assurance if we are not confident in the truth that God 
has revealed to us. And so I want us to take up this question, how can we know the truth, and answer that question from our text that we read this morning. And as we do so, I want us to consider three points. First, we'll consider the situation. Secondly, we will consider the message. And then third, we will consider the messengers. So first of all, as we answer this question, how can we know the truth, we want to consider the situation in which this letter was written. Let me just read for you again, chapter 1, verse 4. And John says there, and we are writing these things so that our joy, or it could be translated, your joy may be complete. Now, as we look at the letter of 1 John as a whole, we just kind of step back and look at it kind of big picture. It seems that what's taking place here is that there are a group of folks within the church that have formed a faction and they have separated themselves from the church. And in separating themselves from the church, they are teaching a new teaching, a different doctrine that they propose is a better teaching than the one that the church had originally received. In fact, we see this if you flip over to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. We see there that John speaks of this faction. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, so here's the situation. You have a church. They've heard the gospel. They've believed in Jesus. And now there's this faction, this group of people who are teaching a different doctrine. And they have now separated themselves from the church. And obviously, as you read the letter of 1 John, this has rattled the church. It's caused doubt. It's caused concern among the believers who are there. And we can understand this if we have ever experienced a church split. I wonder if some of you here this morning have ever experienced a church split. I'm, I'm sure that some of you have. Maybe it was over some doctrinal controversy, similar to what's happening here in 1 John. Maybe it was due to some moral failure of a leader or leaders within the church. Perhaps it was simply on the basis of some relational strife that was taking place in the church that couldn't be resolved. And as a result, the church split. And man, that is so painful. And perhaps some of you, even this morning, you're, you're still disillusioned by that experience. Perhaps it wasn't that long ago that it happened and you would say that you're kind of just coming out of the spiritual fog. Or maybe you even still find yourself in a spiritual fog given the events that took place. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a family member? Have you ever had a friend who walked away from the faith? I have. And gosh, it's hard. And when you see your brother or your sister, or you see your child or one of your close friends walk away from the faith that they had once professed, you may pause and think to yourself, why again do I actually believe this? Am I crazy? Have I been duped? 
And you see, John is is writing to a church here that seems to find themselves in a very similar situation to the one I've just described. He's writing to a church that is shell-shocked by a faction in the church that has caused division and now separated themselves from the body. And so John is writing to these believers who have been shaken. And he's writing to reassure them of their faith and their confidence in the gospel. If you look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John actually tells us very clearly why he writes this letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now that's interesting because some of you already know this, but John wrote another book in the New Testament. He actually wrote several. But one in particular is the Gospel of John. And when he wrote the Gospel of John, he states very clearly in his Gospel why he wrote the Gospel of John. It's found in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, if you want to look it up at another time. But in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says that he wrote the Gospel of John so that you may believe in Jesus. So his purpose in writing the Gospel of John was evangelistic, so that people would come to believe and trust in Jesus for the first time. But here, this letter has a different purpose. Instead, here he says, I am writing to those who believe in the name of Jesus. So those who are already believers, he's writing to them that they may know that they have eternal life. John wants the believers that he is writing to know that they possess Christian assurance because he understands that it is so vital to their spiritual growth and health. That's why he says here in chapter 1, verse 4, that he's writing these things so that their joy may be complete. In John's mind, those two things are not, those two things are intimately connected to one another. To know that you have eternal life and to know joy in Christ. Think about this, my friends. When other Christians that we love and respect drift away into unbelief or into false teaching, you and I will be strengthened by Christian assurance. Or when we are, think about this even at a personal level, when we are pursuing God, we're reading His Word, we're praying, we're faithfully invested in a local church, but we just can't seem to get peace and to get joy. We're we're uncertain about God's disposition towards us. We will be comforted in those moments by Christian assurance. When life is hard, I know we have a number of young moms here this morning. Sometimes you can tell by the cries of the babies, right? That's a blessing. Young moms, when you're up at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and you've changed diapers three times in the last hour and the baby still won't sleep, and you feel like you're about to lose your mind, and you think to yourself, in my sleep-deprived state, I don't know many things. In fact, I feel like I've forgotten most of the things I know. 
It will be a help to you, a comfort to you, to know that you know a few things and you know them for certain. That you know who God is, that you know who you are, that you know that you belong to Him and He belongs to you and you have life eternal and it cannot be taken away from you. Listen, when you get a call from the doctor and the test results are not what you had hoped and you know that you are in for a long battle that may cost your life, it is Christian assurance that will sustain you. So John is writing to these believers because he wants them to know joy. And the only way they will know joy is to know deep down in the core of their being that they know who God is, that they know who they are, and they know that their place is settled with God forever. This is the situation into which John writes. Secondly, though, we see the message. The message. So, let's turn to this, and I want us to look now at verses 1 through 3. Because in order, we've already stated this, in order to to know this joy, we have to know that we have eternal life. And this eternal life is rooted, based in, grounded upon a message. So, look there in chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, One thing to just recognize right up front as we read these verses is that 1 John begins with a really long and a really awkward sentence. So actually, in the original language, verses 1 through 3 is just one long sentence. Okay? And the structure of the sentence is odd as well. So think about that. I'll take you back to, you know, grammar, like fourth, fifth grade grammar, I guess it would be. And and usually the normal structure of a sentence would be subject, verb, object, all right? So subject, verb, object. That's the basic structure of a sentence. But that's not what... And if if this sentence was written that way, it would be written, we, that's the subject, proclaim, that's the verb, and then the object would follow. But that's not how this sentence is written. Actually... The heart of the sentence we proclaim is not stated until verse 3. Everything before that is the object. And so verses, most of verses 1 to 3 is the object of what they proclaim. And John goes to great lengths to explain and elaborate upon the object of their proclamation. Now this is intentional. Because in this sentence what John is intending to do is he's, he's intending to emphasize not the act of proclamation, but the object of what it is they proclaim. He's he's front-loading the object because that's what he wants to emphasize. And as we look at it more closely, we see that the object of what they proclaim, what it is that they proclaim, is actually both a message and a person. A message and a person. Let's look at this. 
So in verse 1, John says that they proclaim the word of life. So a word is a message, right? And then in chapter 1, verse 2, he says that they proclaim, or we proclaim to you, eternal life. So put those two things together, a word of life, eternal life. They are proclaiming a message of eternal life. But there's more. Look there in chapter 1, verse 1, very first phrase. We read these words, that which was from the beginning. Now that's interesting because actually the first sentence in the first chapter of the first verse of the Bible begins the same way. Many of you know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And not only does Genesis 1-1 start that way, in the beginning... But when John wrote his gospel, John starts his gospel out this way. So in John chapter 1, verse 1, John writes, In the beginning, starts out the same way. So he's going all the way back to eternity past, back to creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John, many of some of you know this. He goes on in John chapter 1 to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is a very important passage in the Bible. And what is John saying in John chapter 1? John is saying that there is an eternal Word. He is the eternal Son of God, and that He took on flesh, he took on a body, he dwelt among us. He's speaking about the person of Jesus Christ. He's speaking about the incarnation. The eternal Son of God took on body, took on flesh, and he dwelled among us on the earth. Now, with that background, Genesis 1-1, John chapter 1, we now come into 1 John chapter 1, and verses 1 to 3 begin to make more sense. Notice there in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and in verse 3, we read, he says, we heard the word of life. Now that makes sense. That's not surprising. It is normal to hear a message. They're proclaiming a message. They heard the message. That's normal. But then notice we are told, he says, that we saw it. In fact, he mentions it four times in these first opening verses. Now that's strange. It's natural to hear a message, but not to see it. You don't really see a message, you hear a message. And then notice, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says that they touched it. Now that's really strange. It is natural to hear a message, but here what John is saying is, not only did we hear it, not only did we see it, but we touched it. What is John talking about? Well, it's apparent. Just like the opening chapter to the Gospel of John, John is not only talking about a message, John is talking about a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is so important for us to see because it points to the truth that Christianity is not just a philosophy. Christianity is not just an idea. 
Christianity is not just a set of principles or rules, but at the heart of Christianity is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Many other religions are different. Many other religions will offer you a philosophy or an idea or a set of rules or a set of principles. Christianity comes to you with a person. And our only hope for experiencing Christian assurance is to know and to trust and to rely upon the person of Jesus Christ. So, what is the message? This is it. What is the word of life, the the message of eternal life that John proclaims? It is this, that although we are sinners and we deserve death, God sent His eternal Son into this world to die on the cross and to take our death. And then He raised Him from the dead, thereby defeating death. So that if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be forgiven and we will be granted eternal life with God forever. This is the message of life. It is the gospel. And listen, my friends, what John is indicating here in these opening verses is that this message is so interwoven with the person of Jesus that they are essentially one and the same. So that to preach the message of life, to preach the gospel, is to preach Jesus. And to preach Jesus, rightly, is to preach the message of life, to preach the gospel. When Paul says... Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And then on another, uh, on another point, he says, we preach Christ and Him crucified. He is not saying two separate things. He is saying the same thing. And so very simply, let me ask you this question. Have you believed? Have you trusted? Have you staked all your life in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the message that John proclaims. This is the message that brings Christian assurance. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of sinners so that we might have life. Now, third, let's consider the messengers. The messengers. So that's the situation the message, and now the messengers. Now, look again, and I'm going to read them for us again at verses 1 through 3. We read these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, we've established the context, the situation. We've talked about the message, which is the basis for Christian assurance. But here's the question. How can we be confident that this message is faithful and true? 
Especially given the circumstances into which John is writing, the the context here, how could they be confident and certain that this message is true when the false teachers were distorting it and changing it? How can they know that this message is true? Now, there there are a number of different ways we could answer that from the Bible, but I want us to focus specifically on what John has to say about that question here in our text this morning. And John answers that question, how can we know that the message is true? John answers that question by appealing to apostolic authority. Now, let me just say, I know that many of you are probably thinking, what in the world is apostolic authority, okay? But but I want us, it's actually an important truth that's taught throughout the New Testament and is very practical for our spiritual well-being and health. And so I want us to think for a few moments now about what is apostolic authority. First of all, let's define what is an apostle because apostolic refers to apostle. An apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. So they saw him after he was raised from the dead. They're an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus and then they were entrusted by Jesus with authority to proclaim and preserve what they had witnessed. That's what an apostle is. And in these verses, what John is doing is he is appealing to his apostolic authority. And actually, if you look at it carefully, not only is he appealing to his apostolic authority, but he's appealing to the apostolic authority of the the apostles as a whole. So when we read these first three verses, it's interesting that we don't read over and over again, I, 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 I. Rather, we read, we, we, we. Who is the we that John is referring to? He's referring to himself and the other apostles. And so what John is saying here is, why is it all these, there's these false teachers that have, that are troubling the church, that have brought doubt and confusion and unrest, and John begins his letter He begins his letter by establishing why is it that the church should listen to him and not the false teachers. And the reason, John says, is because he's an apostle. The reason is because he's been given a special authority by Jesus as an eyewitness of Jesus. He's been given apostolic authority. Now, with that in mind, we notice here in these verses that the apostle's authority involves three actions, okay? And we're going to look at these quickly. The apostles testify, the apostles proclaim, and the apostles write. So first of all, the apostles testify. This is found in chapter 1, verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it. could be translated, we bear witness to it. Now, in any court case, eyewitnesses provide the most powerful and convincing testimony. So, if there's a crime that's occurred or there's an event that has occurred and there's a court case, everybody wants to know, was there any eyewitnesses? If so, we want to hear from them. What do they have to say? And when it comes to the person of Jesus and the events that surrounded Jesus' life, John essentially raises his hand and says, I'm a witness. Not only am I a witness, we 
are witnesses, the apostles. We will bear witness. We will testify. Notice, that's what he's saying all through these verses. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands. Chapter 1, verse 2. We have seen it. Chapter 1, verse 3. We have seen and we have heard. Over and over again, John is making this point. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've touched it. In fact, he emphasizes the fact that he's an eyewitness. Four times in just these three verses, he says, we saw it. It's interesting because when John writes his gospel, and he's writing to convince us to believe in Jesus... He records the resurrection of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John in John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, when when John records the event of the resurrection of Jesus, the word see is used in that one chapter 12 times. To refer to himself, to refer to Mary, to refer to Peter, to refer to the other disciples. He just repeats it over and over and over again. We saw the angel. We saw the empty tomb. We saw Jesus. We saw it. We saw it. We saw it. And he is here to bear witness of what he saw. Now listen. You and I can doubt eyewitnesses, no doubt. And sometimes we should. We have to determine, is the eyewitness credible? But we also have to recognize that there can always be a reason to doubt. I don't know if you've heard of the the flat earth movement. Um, I had heard about it, but I didn't know what it was. And so a couple weeks ago, I went online and I watched a video And uh, it was a video of a reporter who went to a flat earth convention. This is a movement now where people are persuaded that the earth is not round, but in fact, the earth is flat. And so the reporters, they go to this, you know, convention and they're interviewing different people, attendees there who are convinced that the earth is flat and they ask them different questions and they present them with various evidence and so forth. And they always have a response. The reports are fake. The pictures have been doctored. They even had an astronaut. An astronaut that had been up in space for an extended period of time working on a space station or something. And he gives witness. Testimony. He says, listen, I just want to assure you, I was up there for a long time. I could see back at the earth. It's round, I promise. No, he's lying. He's making it up. right. So there is always, can always be a reason to doubt. What we have to consider, though, is, is the witness credible? Is the witness reasonable? Is the testimony that the witness gives reasonable? Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, a Christian author and apologist. C.S. Lewis had this great paradigm through which to think about the claims of Jesus. He says that as you think about the claims of Jesus, you should consider, is Jesus either a liar, is he a lunatic, Or is he Lord? Those are kind of the only three options when you think about the radical claims of Jesus. And actually, that same paradigm could be applied to the apostles. Are the apostles liars? 
Are they lunatics or should we listen to them? And I would just encourage you, if you're wrestling with that, to read the writings of the apostles. Read the New Testament. And as you read the New Testament, consider that question in your own mind. Are these individuals, are they just compulsive liars? Are they delusional? Are they nuts and just out of their mind? Should be committed to a psychiatric ward? Or are they credible witnesses who demand our respect? As you're considering those questions, remember this. That basically every single one of them died a martyr's death. For what it was that they professed that they had seen. And they died a martyr's death not because they were convinced of something that somebody else had told them. They died a martyr's death because of what they professed that they themselves had seen and witnessed. That's very different, isn't it? If, if under the extremities of the persecution and the torture and even the death that they experienced, if they had really just made it all up all along, don't you think that one of them, maybe just one of them would have recanted? But they didn't. The apostles bear witness. They testify to what they have heard, to what they have seen, to what they have touched, and they bear witness even with their own lives. Secondly, the apostles proclaim. The apostles testify, and then the other thing we see here in our passage is that the apostles proclaim. Look there in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it. Here it is, and proclaim to you the eternal life. And then in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, let me just say that as we read these opening three verses, there is a wrong direction we can go, okay? So a wrong application of these first three verses would be to spiritualize them. And to like, to, to say, okay, so the apostles, they heard Jesus and they saw Jesus and they looked upon Jesus and they touched Jesus. So we need to kind of create some kind of spiritual, mystical experience where in some sense we see and touch and, 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 uh, and hear Jesus ourselves before we can proclaim Jesus to others. That, that's, that's not how we should interpret these verses. I don't mean to undermine Christian experience. If we are to, if we are to be Christians, we, we must come to know Jesus. And Jesus is a resurrected Lord. He's a living Christ. He's a living person today, and we can come to know Him. There's an experience involved there. But that's not what John is talking about here in these verses. Instead, what John is talking about here in these verses is a unique experience that was unique to the apostles themselves. And what John is pointing to is that this unique experience 
is the basis for their unique authority as apostles. And you can see the rationale, the reasoning in the text. Notice this in verse 2. That life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we have testified to it. Therefore, we proclaim it to you. Or, even more clear, in chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, here it is, now, we proclaim also to you. In other words, God granted us this unique opportunity to witness the person and work of Jesus so that we might possess a unique authority to proclaim the truth about him to you. And so listen, my friends, our response, right response to apostolic authority is not to try to create some experience that would parallel the experience of the apostles, but our right response to apostolic authority is to receive the authoritative witness of the apostles and to believe it. So the apostles testify, they witness, they proclaim, which assumes authority, And then third, the apostles write. The apostles write. Look there in chapter 1, verse 4, and we read these words. And we are writing these things so that our joy, or it could be translated your joy, may be complete. So not only do the apostles testify to what they have seen, not only do they proclaim authoritatively what has been entrusted to them by Jesus... But then they have also written it down for us so that it might be preserved. Now, especially, we think, in an age of the 24-hour news cycle, in an age of social media, we are bombarded by information, right? It seems like everyone has an opinion about everything and they are all eager to share it with us. And in that environment, it's almost dizzying all the information that comes to us and the different perspectives and opinions and ideas and so forth. And so what John is saying here up front as he opens up this letter is that he wants his readers to know that when he writes and the other apostles write, they aren't just blogging their ideas. They aren't just tweeting their opinions. But when they write, they write consistent with what they have seen and testified and consistent with the authority that the Lord Jesus has invested in them as apostles. And what does this mean? This means that what they have written, namely the Bible, the the authoritative witness of the apostles, is the ground and basis for our Christian assurance. It is what we can bank our lives and our salvation upon. And let me just say, my friends, that this is good news. It's actually really good news. So, Nikki and I, uh, my wife and I, we bought a house about a year and a half ago that's just less than a mile from the church here. And we were so thankful to get the house, but when we bought the house, we knew that the house needed to be painted. And so we waited a while, and last fall we found a guy and we hired him to paint the house. 
And as we hired this guy to paint the house, I knew that there could be some problems. There could be, as we go along, you know, some disagreements over what was to be done and the scope of the project and so forth. So we started to have a discussion about that. And granted, this is not the most official way to do it, but I was texting him about what was going to be done and so on and so forth. So anyways, we, we agree on what's going to be done, and I text him, you know, what the scope of the work, basically, what we'd need to buy and so forth. And then I say, you know, if you agree to this, please respond and say yes. And he did. And as we walked through the project, man, it was so helpful. I mean, there were a number of times where maybe we saw things differently or whatever, and we go back to that test message and look at it, and he'd say, well, you said this, and I'd say, well, you said this, so forth. and then, you know, it'd be resolved. And it was so helpful. But there was one thing that I had forgotten to include in the text message, and that was a pay schedule. So when we initially started the project, there were some supplies that needed to be purchased. And so I gave him money to go get those supplies and so forth, and then he got on with the project and he was doing his work. And as he got somewhat close to the end of the project, but really there were a number of things that needed to be tied up and completed, he wanted me to go ahead and pay him. And so uh, we had a conversation about that. And I said, well, you know, actually, I don't feel comfortable paying you, especially in full, until the project is completed in full. Well, to say the least, he did not like that. And it caused quite a stir. And so the point of my story is not whether I was right or whether I was wrong, whether I should have paid him or whether I shouldn't have. You may have different opinions on that. The point of the story is, man, I wish I would have completed or included that in the contract. I wish I would have written it down. Why? Because when you write something down, there's clarity, right? There's a sense of certainty and assurance. And if I had just written it down like I wrote all the other things down, the, the problem, the issue, the conflict would have never happened. Listen, my friends, is it not an expression of the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God that He has given us a word? a sure and a certain word that we can return to again and again and again and again and we can know for certain, we can know for sure who He is, who we are, and that we have eternal life. The word, the writings of the apostles given to us with the authority of Jesus Christ is the basis for our Christian assurance. And my friends, true joy, true hope is realized and experienced in the Christian life when we rest ourselves upon the promises of God's Word. With that in mind, my friends, I hope that you will continue to come back over the next several weeks, as we turn again and again, as John has indicated here in these opening verses, as we turn again and again to this apostolic word, to this word that has been given to us by God with the authority of Jesus Christ to know how we can possess strong, true, certain, abiding Christian assurance. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we're so grateful for your grace and we're so thankful for your word. And Lord, uh, we thank you for how John, even in these opening verses, just so clearly lays out for us 
Not only his experience, but the authority that you have invested in him and the others, apostles who witnessed and heard the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that even as we go through various ups and downs in lives in life, as we experience even various spiritual ups and downs in life and, di- and, diff- and disappointments, Lord, we pray that again and again and again we would return to Your written, written Word, that we would trust in Your great promises. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.